Dear Father, we ask again that you would be with us in a very close way just now. And as we think especially about the tabernacle in the wilderness and what it represents, you, the Lamb, your blood, you, the High Priest, you, the Shekinah glory, please help us to come to an understanding of these things. And may that bring us closer to you. Amen. Well, of course, the the tabernacle, the sanctuary system goes all through the books of Moses. And so I thought this would be a good time to try to, in a concise way, uh, discuss that one topic. And this is actually two lectures that are kind of pushed together into one. Uh, So if you want, there is some more detail. I gave two lectures on this, which you can pull up on uh, godscharacter.com. But anyway, I'm going to go through the big picture of this because you might think, well, what's the meaning for us today? I mean, come on, we don't have a tabernacle. We don't kill lambs anymore. Um, all this furniture. But the thing is, it's all the way through the Bible. I mean, the New Testament is full of it, the book of Revelation. And so uh, we're really invited to try to understand the meaning here. And I think uh, the first point, we, we mentioned a little bit about the sacrificial system earlier, and so I won't go through all these slides, but just a couple verses on this one question, because we can read through this and come to the assumption that God is being somehow appeased in this process. And there are so many verses clearly that say this is not the point. You do not want sacrifices, all right? Offer them. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. Well, then why ask us to do them? My sacrifice is a humble spirit, O God. You will not request a humble and repentant heart. So somehow out of all of this, God is wanting to change the way we think and act. In Hosea, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I'd rather have my people know me. Remember the meaning there, to know, intimacy, relationship, a trusting relationship with God. I'd rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. And then, of course, Jesus said, I desire mercy or kindness, not sacrifice and sacrificial victims. Okay, so the Bible is pretty clear on that. God is not being appeased here in this process. He's trying to change the way we think and act. What is the meaning then? Well, just first of all, a question. Um, do you think it would be a positive thing if, let's just say, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant were found today? Think that would be a good thing? Wouldn't a lot of people believe, perhaps, the Bible account? Yeah, there wouldn't, wouldn't there be a resurgence in interest, perhaps, Do you think more people would become Christians if some of these things were found? Well, what I think might happen, I mean, let's just imagine another example. Let's just say that right here in uh, downtown Loma Linda, God showed up, 20-foot tall pillar of fire. Everyone would believe, right? They did a poll worldwide, would there be an atheist in the world at that point? Well, there might be a few, but I think a lot of people would be converted at that moment. What's the danger? Why do many people become atheists? Because their picture of God, or perhaps what they've been told, is God is a punishing tyrant. He's coming back and he's going to do something to the bad people for a very, very, very long period of time. So what would happen is people might believe in God, but they would believe in the false picture of God that they had rejected. So now you'd have a lot of people believing in God, but a false picture. So the ultimate question is not, does God exist? The ultimate question is, what's he like? That's why God doesn't come and intimidate us into believing that he exists. Got to come into a right picture of God. So why make a tent? Well, a number of verses here. 
God says, the people must make a sacred tent for me so that I may live among them. Isn't that kind of neat? God here wants to be close to the people. Build a little tent down there so that I can dwell with you. From all time to come, this burnt offering is to be offered in my presence at the entrance of the tent of my presence. That is where I will meet my people and speak to you. There I will meet the people of Israel and the dazzling light of my presence will make the place holy. I will live among the people of Israel and I will be their God. This is a way somehow of God coming closer to the people, to meet with them. Of course, we go all the way to the very end of the Bible. Wonderful words. Now God's home is with people. He'll live with them and they will be his people. So this is the process of atonement, at-one-ment, reconciliation, coming close to God. And God is, I think, reaching a people. Remember the idolatry that was going on at this time. God is trying to make a split from the idolatrous worship and moving the people in the right direction. So here we have a diagram here of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And uh, we're going to go through each of these pieces of furniture and discuss some ideas about what it all might mean. And I guess just a question, uh, where would you like to be in this tabernacle? Would you want to be way out here in the corner? Or do you want to be right in there? I think this, what this is supposed to describe for us is how we may come closer and closer and closer and finally into intimate fellowship, relationship, friendship with God. We're to go through those veils. We're to come closer, not to be shielded from. It's a process of describing how we enter into this relationship with God. So, of course, we have a number of physical temples described in the Bible, the tabernacle that we'll go through now, Solomon's temple, Ezekiel's temple was never built, Herod's temple, of course, in Jesus' time. But there are spiritual temples. Remember when the people came to Jesus at the temple and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. They had no idea what he meant. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. Now, I think this is extremely important. The spiritual temple, it's so redundant, this spiritual temple. Come to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Christ is the cornerstone. He was rejected by the people, but he is precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. So we are somehow stones, living stones in this spiritual temple with Christ as the cornerstone. What's the meaning there? That's a few other verses. In Revelation, we're described as pillars in the temple. So we're stones in the temple. We're pillars in the temple. And in Ephesians 2, you two are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. He's the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit. Okay, we're in the New Testament here. Coming back and talking about the tabernacle, the temple, there's a meaning for us, I think very important in this. 1 Corinthians 3, surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple, for God's temple is holy, and you yourselves are his temple. Now, how this had been taught to me a very long time ago is that this referred to diet, health, exercise, cheese, sugar, those kinds of things. Um, well, let me just give you uh, here a dilemma. I have a patient who had a very high cervical cord injury. He's quadriplegic, can't move his arms or legs. And as part of this injury, um, he can't eat either. He has a feeding tube. 
Okay, so I can't give him any advice on diet. I can't give him any advice on exercise. Um, would I say to him, well, this verse doesn't apply to you. You're not a temple. Where's the ultimate temple? Right up here, right? Isn't this where we think, where we decide for God or against God? Isn't this ultimately where the temple resides? Right? We can do a heart transplant, right? But that person is still infinitely capable of having an intimate relationship with God. We can't transplant brains, right? So the ultimate temple is in the mind. So don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? Where does the Holy Spirit live in you? Little finger? No, right up here in the mind. This is where the Holy Spirit communicates with us and brings us closer and closer to God. The Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God. There's so many of these. 2 Corinthians 6, For we are the temple of the living God. As God himself has said, I will make my home with my people and live among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Hebrews 3, we are his house. Okay, so there's so many of them. And I would say this refers to us individually being temples, but also collectively as God's friends come together as living stones built on the cornerstone as the church. Well, some of you might have come up in a similar background as I did about discussion of a cleansing of the temple. Is there a dirty building in heaven, would you say, that needs to be broomed out? Or what needs to be cleansed? If we are the temple, uh, are we not infected by this condition called sin, which as we've described is a false picture of God. That's what happened to Adam and Eve at the tree. Love and trust in God was broken. They believed God to be a tyrant after believing the lies of Satan. Love and trust was broken. Now they're involved in rebellious actions. Okay, so what's involved in the cleansing of the temple? Restoring us to a loving, trusting relationship with God. Restoring in us a right picture of God. Well, the thing is, all the way back in Leviticus, this is the function of the cleansing of the temple. You go to Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. What was the purpose? In this way, he will perform the ritual to purify the most holy place from the uncleanness of the people of Israel and from all their sins. He must do this to the tent because it stands in the middle of the camp, which is ritually unclean. What is purified? We read on. On that day, the ritual is to perform to purify them from all their sins so that they will be ritually clean. And again, and perform the ritual to purify the most holy place, the rest of the tent of the Lord's presence, the altar, the priests, and all the people of the community. We're the, we're the ones that need to be cleansed. These regulations are to be observed from all time to come. This ritual must be performed once a year to purify the people. We're the ones who need the cleansing. So as we go through and we discuss all the furniture and so on, I think we see the process by which this cleansing takes place. So there are a number of things here that we could say about this, but let's uh, read these verses in Hebrews, which I think really make a good point about this cleansing. Seeing that the first tabernacle was a parable, a visible symbol, a type or picture of the present age, in it gifts and sacrifice are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience. That's the whole point. Or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. Doesn't that sound like something going on where we think? But how much more will the blood of Christ make our consciences clean from dead human efforts so that we can worship the living God? That's the whole point. What is sin? 
well, we sometimes uh, we discuss sin as if it could be put in a bottle. And as if sin, we could lay on a table somewhere. We could all look at it. We could observe it. We could beat it with a hammer or a shoe or something like that. What is sin? Sin is ultimately something that goes right on between the ears. Broken love and trust leading to rebellious actions. Sin is something that needs to be healed, not punished. So what's the process here? Well, we've got lots of symbols where we're very clearly given the meaning in the Bible. Of course, the lamb is Jesus. The high priest is Jesus. Lots of things are Jesus in the tabernacle. The daily priest is you and I. The lid over the covenant boxes we'll see is Jesus, the Shekinah glory, the Godhead. Of course, we have angels woven in the curtains. Not much mystery there. Oil, fire, water, Holy Spirit. Okay, so we've got lots of things that are laid out for us. And that's why I want to try to just stretch our minds a little bit and let's use some of these things that we've been given as definitions and let's try to understand because I think God met the people where they were, but the whole design here is really genius, which I think reaches you and I with a message. First of all, blood. Um, What's the meaning of the blood here? Now, I mean this very reverently, okay? So don't, uh, uh, I'm not uh, making light of this. But when we say we're saved by the blood, and here we have a blood smear, um, are we saved, I mean this reverently, okay, so I don't want to be mistaken here, but seriously, are we saved by erythrocytes, lymphocytes, eosinophils, um, plasma, platelets? If we're going to spell out the meaning of the blood, what does that mean? What part of the blood are we saved by? Is there a meaning here uh, to this, or is it just... Uh, a statement as is. What does it mean to be saved by the blood? We say covered by the blood, all kinds of things. What does that mean? Well, it's all in the meaning. Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 11, describing uh, the the supper where we eat and drink, of course, symbolizing the blood, the body of Jesus Christ, said, if you do not recognize the meaning of the Lord's body when you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you bring judgment on yourself as you eat and drink. There's a meaning. What is the meaning? Well, uh, this always stuck with me, but several years ago when Mel Gibson came out with his movie, uh, remember The Passion of Christ, and uh, he made the comment about God. He said, God could have pricked his finger and solved the problem, but he decided to go all the way. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Let's just imagine here Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, Had God pricked his finger, if we had a drop of blood, would that have solved the problem? What about Jesus as a baby? Remember Herod, I think Satan ultimately desperately tried to have him killed. Okay, if he'd been killed, blood would have been shed. And in certain models, wouldn't that have solved the problem? Why work so hard to save Jesus if all we needed was a drop of blood? What is the meaning of the blood? Well, Jesus makes it difficult for us. I guarantee this truth, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have the source of life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I'll bring them back to life on the last day. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. That's a hard one, isn't it? How do you eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ? We don't usually describe it this way. We usually describe it as somehow we're covered, but according to Jesus, we somehow need to internalize his blood. How do you do that? Well, he went on, and remember, this was given uh, in the context of he just fed all the people. They wanted to make him king 
right? And so he gave them a very, very hard saying that turned a lot of people away. How can we do this? Eat your flesh, drink your blood? Well, he went on and described it in a different way, right here in John 6. What gives life is God's spirit. Human power is of no use of all. The words I have spoken to you bring God's life-giving spirit. Up here he just said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That gives you the source of life. And now the words I have spoken bring God's life-giving spirit. Jesus came as the word, right? He came to bring us the truth. I mean, God became flesh and blood, which is an amazing thing. And to parallel this, here's what eternal life is all about. This is eternal life to know you. Eternal life is ultimately not about longevity. It's ultimately about a relationship which is based on the kind of person God is. It's based on intimacy, relationship, knowing that he's just like Jesus in character. And so um, we're going to have to spend a lot more time on this, I think, to really make it convincing. But I think ultimately the blood refers to God became flesh and blood. God became blood. He died, shed his blood to reveal to us the truth about God, what he's like, his character, his principle. And when we say, when we talk about the blood, it's kind of a shorthand way of referring to something much, much greater. Notice, blood always cleanses, never defiles. And if the blood is ultimately representing what God is like, that would make sense. As Moses' teaching tells us, blood was used to cleanse almost everything. And now here's a challenging verse. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. What does that mean? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Well, um, I had a patient that I saw not too long ago who had breast cancer about 10 years ago. And she was, uh, it was fairly aggressive when she had it, but she was treated with chemotherapy, ended up having surgery, radiation, and now she is 10 years in remission. Now, what would be a way of, another perhaps way of describing that? Would we say that her cancer was pardoned? She's healed, right? She's fully capable of going back into remission and into a cancerous state again, but her cancer is for the time healed. The blood is meant to change us, to cleanse us, to restore us again, to see the truth about God. That's that's how we are, uh, in a sense, healed, which is the the salvation, like a salve. It is to heal us, to restore us. So what I want to go through here very quickly is the tabernacle. And we're going to follow the blood all the way through from outside and into the most holy place. So we have an outer court, holy place, most holy place. And this is an explanation that appeals to me. So see what you think about this. Um, I like here the thought that the brazen altar in the outer court, bronze, not gold, uh, represents the unconverted heart and mind. Willing to listen, but unconverted. And we'll go through this. The golden altar, we have three boxes, one in the outer court, one in the holy place, one in the most holy place. The golden altar made out of gold in the holy place. This is the converted mind. And the covenant box in the most holy place, covered by that gold lid, which represents Jesus Christ, is the sealed mind, settled into the truth about God's character and about God's principles. Let's try to make a case for this. All right, so we have the lamb brought in here, sacrificed on the brazen altar. So what happened? The head of the household brought in a perfect lamb. It was examined, found to be spotless. Same man killed the sheep, blood was drained, and then the blood was placed on the horns of the brazen altar, and the lamb was then placed by the priest on the brazen altar. Okay, so here's a man bringing in an animal. 
And we have the brazen altar. Now, it's interesting. The blood, of course, is applied to the horns. Horns, typically in the Bible, like in Daniel, it's pride, selfishness. And as these get smaller, as we go into the, uh, the covenant box, uh, may represent some purification that's taken place. Okay, so here's the brazen altar. And again, an explanation that appeals to me here is that the mind of the unconverted, but yet willing to listen, experiences the love of Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus dying on Calvary, forgiving those who tortured him to death. That changes the person. That's repentance. person changes the way they think and act. Kindness of God leads them to repentance. They're thinking in a new way. They're restored to a different image of who God is. So the lamb is Christ. We discussed a possible meaning of the horns on the altar. And the fire, of course, here represents the truth, convicted by the Holy Spirit on the mind of the unconverted. And then the organs that are burned up could represent the inner man, the old man of sin, selfishness, being burned up, transformed in character. Okay, why is this appealing? Well, what happens when you're converted? You're baptized, right? So the priest here, the lamb is burned up, and then the next thing is the laver uh, here with the water. So going from the brazen altar, and we wash here in the laver. And so the Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and their feet whenever they went into the tent or altar, just as the Lord commanded. And notice, the man who brought the sheep is following the priest by faith as he then enters into the holy place and the most holy place. So again, what's done when one is converted? Baptism, spiritual birth. We're now a believer. And of course, Jesus was baptized, not that he was converted, but Jesus is our example, right? The high priest is our example. We're following him. Jesus is leading us in to the holy place, the most holy place. He's inviting us in. Hey, it's a safe place. Come on in. All right, so we follow him by faith. And in John 3, I'm telling you the truth, replied Jesus. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the spirit. The more important birth is the spiritual rebirth. And that's what's going on here. Okay, so we enter in. We're getting closer. That's a good thing. We're going through the veil. Remember, the veils are separating us from where we want to be. Okay, so we are now entering in to a member of the church of God. And I'm not saying a specific denomination, but we're now God's friends. And we'll talk about these three things that are in the holy place. So we go through the veil. And again, the veils separate us. We want to get through those veils. Those are not good. Veils are not good. However, their minds became closed. In fact, to this day, the same veil is still there when they read the Old Testament. It isn't removed because only Christ can remove it. Yet even today, when they read the books of Moses, a veil covers their minds. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Look, we understand more. We're coming closer. We're going through the veil. Okay, so these three objects then in the holy place, I see representing the key elements of the Christian life. And we'll go through these in detail. But for a big picture, the table of showbread is nourishment in the word of God. Lampstand is we are a witness to the world. And the golden altar with incense is daily intimate communication with God. What's the evidence for that? Well, table of showbread here. This is interesting. I know I'm going fast, but I'm, again, trying to get through all of this quickly. This was made by the priests. Now, who made the Bible? Of course, it's inspired, but written down by people. 
And so this was made by the priests, eaten on the Sabbath day, and I believe represents the word of God. Jesus, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, quoted this verse. The Lord was teaching you that people need more than food to live on. They need every word that the Lord has spoken. And reading the Bible, again, I have found is just, it's the best way to facilitate an intimate conversation, relationship, friendship with God as you read. It's a very important part of our Christian experience. And notice when you eat bread, when you read something just like bread, goes in your body, it's fully assimilated throughout your whole body. Okay, changes the way we think and act. So again, the Word of God, when internalized, becomes a part of a person, changes us, changes our character. So we need physical food, but of course we need the spiritual food as well. The lampstand, what does that represent? Well, let me just, based on this model as we've described it so far, what do you think would be the meaning here in Exodus 25 when as we're describing this and we get all these details that can be boring if we're not perhaps thinking about it in a right way, what do you think would be the meaning then of making the request, make seven lamps for the lampstand, set them up so that they shine toward the front? What would be the purpose of turning them so they're shining out? Isn't it to be a witness through the veil, like a light? Okay, it's to be a witness to the outside world. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? as a Christian. So Jesus is the ultimate light. The real light, which shines on everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus. And he spoke to the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life, will never walk in darkness. Okay, but again, these things are in parallel in the tabernacle. We are to follow, we are to imitate Christ. So we are light to the world. From Jesus himself, you are like a light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on a lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise you. No, and praise God, right? It's just like, you know, if a patient is healed of a very bad terminal condition and people look at them and say, boy, what happened to you? Well, doesn't the ultimate praise go back to the physician? who had the remedy, right? So it's the same with us. And in Acts, for this commandment, the Lord has given us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles so that all the world might be saved. And in Revelation, it said very, very clearly, Jesus is walking among the lampstands in the holy place and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's defined for us. Okay, we, the church, are the lampstand. So again, in where it's repeated several times that the light should shine toward the front, uh, this is a witness. Now the lampstand was very ornate. Uh, buds, flowers, almonds, and I think this represents the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility. What's it like to be full of the Holy Spirit? full of self-control. So uh, this is a Christ-like character represented by a true Christian, the lampstand. What's in the lampstand? What makes the fire burn? Oil. Now this is, I believe, uh, fascinating here. What's the ultimate function of the Holy Spirit? The oil, the fire. The, uh, in the upper room, Jesus was so redundant. Listen to the definition that Jesus gave to the function of the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. 
He repeated it. The helper will come. The spirit, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God. And it comes from the Father. I'll send him to you from the Father and he will speak about me. Spirit brings us closer to the image of God revealed by Jesus. Convicts us of the character of God. When the Spirit comes, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? He'll lead you into all the truth. What truth? Truth about what God is like. Truth about his character. And so in this description here, those who worship God must be led by the Spirit to worship him according to the truth. The Spirit is always bringing us closer and closer and closer to the reality of who God is. Okay, so we're nourished here by the Word of God. We're the church here full of the Holy Spirit coming closer and closer to the reality of God. And now we have um, here the uh, golden altar of incense. What's the meaning? Well, let's read the description in Exodus. Put this altar outside the curtain which hangs in front of the covenant box. That is the place where I will meet with you. Every morning when Aaron comes to take care of the lamps, he's to burn sweet-smelling incense on it. He must do that same when he lights the lamps in the evening. This offering of incense is to continue without interruption for all time to come. Okay, well, we know there was some interruption in this whole process. What's the meaning for you and I? Here's what appeals to me. I mean, what's, what do we, else do we need in this Christian relationship? Prayer, intimacy with God. So here in Psalm, I pray to you, Lord, please listen when I pray and hurry to help me. Think of my prayer as a sweet-smelling incense. Notice there's still that curtain. We're not completely at one with God, but we're in prayerful communication with God. And notice it's to continue without interruption for all time to come. And Paul would say, be joyful always, pray at all times. If you spend all of your time on your knees in prayer, uh, Christian experience dies. Right? So we're not to be on our knees the whole time, but our life is to be, every interaction is to be infused with this trusting, prayerful relationship with God. Now, what happens? This incense, do you think it was only noticed? You could only smell it right in the tabernacle? No, this would diffuse out all over the place, right? Just like the lamp. So God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. Our relationship with God is to diffuse to everyone around us. And notice, this is to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it's a deadly stench that kills. Some don't like a God who forgives those who torture him to death. But to others, it's beautiful. But for those who are being saved, it's a fragrance that brings life. Okay, so now there's still one veil in between. And it's interesting, this veil did not extend to the top. So you could see over, okay, we're getting closer to a true picture of God, but not perfect. The veil separates us. And here's what I find fascinating. What happened when Jesus died? That veil between the holy and the most holy place was ripped from top to bottom. What is the pinnacle moment in universal history where we see what God is like? Is it not at the cross? The veil is ripped. We see that's what God is like. Unbelievable. So Christ is the way through the veil. He's not the veil. He's the way through the veil. We have then, my friends, complete freedom to go into the most holy place by means of the death of Jesus. He opened for us a new way, a living way, through the curtain that is through his own body. 
And that's why if we realize, boy, that's what God is like, we can come in boldly to the throne of our gracious God because we know now he is gracious. Okay, so now we enter in. We're into the most holy place. We're through the last veil. And we have here just one object, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, because of time, I'm going to go through this very quickly, but there were three objects in that box. Very significant, I think. There was manna, of course, and Jesus, again, he defines these terms for us. I'm telling you the truth. And he talks about the bread that Moses gave. But then he said so many times in this passage in John, I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread. I am the manna. What would this mean now to have the manna, Christ, inside? I think this is really... You know, this is, this is more intimate than the table of showbread where we're just we're eating the word of God and it's diffusing throughout us. And I think this is where we get terms um, like this. We have the mind of Christ. Christ, his character, has really become a part of us. It is internalized. May you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known, and so be completely filled with the very nature, the very character of God. I think it's describing a wonderful thing. That manna now... Christ himself is right where it should be, right upstairs. What else was in there? Well, Aaron's rod with almonds and flowers. Remember, this was just a stick that now budded, blossomed, beautiful flowers, almonds. And notice here, Aaron's stick representing the tribe of Levi. I wish I could include a lot of verses now to talk about we are the priests. We really are. But just one here in Malachi 3 in the description of Jesus coming with a refiner's fire and so on, he's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the priests, the sons of Levi. That's you and I that are purified and refine them like gold and silver. And just like the lampstand had all those buds and all, you know, everything very ornate, again, Aaron's stick with a blossom uh, represents a Christ-like character. But what I think is most uh, neat of all in all this, what else is in there? Ten Commandments. So many verses on this. Where does God want the Ten Commandments? On a wall somewhere. He wants them right inside. Just one verse on this. Jeremiah 31. The Lord says, The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. What's that going to be like? The new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them. And write it on their hearts. Remember, what does all law point toward? Love. Love for others. That's the law. I will be their God. They will be my people. None of them will have to teach a neighbor to know the Lord because all will know me from the least to the greatest. Law written on the heart. Christ inside. A Christ-like character. This is all what is being described here. And now we could spend an hour, we could spend three hours talking about Romans 3.25, a very um, well-translated in various ways. But it literally says that Christ became the lid, hilasterion. What does that mean? Well, I, like Luther, translated it the mercy seat. Wonderful. Leave it up to us to decide what happened at the lid. Uh, we'll talk about some of the various ways of translating this, but I'll read a few that I like. God showed that Christ is the throne of mercy, where God's approval is given through faith in Christ's blood. God appointed him as a sacrifice for reconciliation, through faith, trust, by the shedding of his blood. See, what is happening here is 
the person who has the law of love written on their heart, Christ-like. We want to come close, right? We want to be joined to the Shekinah glory. So the lid in between is not to shield. The lid in between is to reconcile, to restore, to bring us into intimacy with God. That's what Jesus came, his purpose. Now, this is a a version written by a psychiatrist that I know, and uh, he's written a version of the New Testament, which I think is wonderful, uh, but he translated it this way. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died. Wonderful. Intimacy with God. That's the lid. And now we're at one with God. That's the whole point of this system, to show us the way to full reconciliation with God. Now there's a last point. Remember I said these things run in parallel. Jesus is our high priest. We are the priests. We're looking at our high priest. We're trying to do the same things that the high priest is doing. What's the function of our high priest? What was the mission of Jesus? He said in John 17, I glorified you on earth, talking to the Father, by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. Or I fulfilled your mission, as many versions say. What was the mission? What was the detail that Jesus came to do? Message Bible is great here. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. He came to reveal the character of God. So what is our mission then as priests? Aren't we doing the same thing that our high priest is doing? Malachi 2.7, it is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. We have the same mission as Jesus Christ. It is to go out and to reveal that God is good. He's just like Jesus in character. Same mission, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful mission. All of you should uh, fully be involved in becoming priests and representing God as he is. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you so much that out of a what would seem to be a bleak situation in the wilderness with a rebellious people who are continually turning to idolatry, that you gave a very simple system to reach them, to turn them away from idols, but yet so rich, so full of meaning that ultimately points to you, to Christ Jesus, as the perfect representation of who you are in character. We love you. Amen.